All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and my partner, Chen Lin, uh, publishes what is uh, newsletters called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And uh, in order to sign up for both those newsletters, you need to go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. For Chen, you need to put your name on a waiting list, and then the first uh, half a month of the first of the new quarter, beginning July, uh, he will accept new subscribers. Um, you can also sign up for my newsletter. Uh, you don't have to put your name on a waiting list. Just go to miningstocks.com and uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks uh, is always available there. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. I want to suggest that you continue to send uh, your questions and comments to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Also, uh, follow me on Twitter at Jay Taylor Media. I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Carlisle Goldfields, RN uh, Resources, Cornerstone Capital Resources, and uh, Kalanex Mines. Um, I've titled today's show, The Fed Will Never Raise Interest Rates, But the Markets Will. Dan Oliver and Michael Oliver return. Max Porterfield will be with me for the first time. Max uh, will stop by at about 15 minutes from now. Uh, he will fill us in with what is going on with Calinex Mines. Well, this is a company that I have recommended in my newsletter. It's a company uh, that has an operation in Manitoba that is doing very well. The shares have performed very well. Uh, it has a very promising base metals and precious metals project. Minuscule market cap around $6 million, and I think it has uh, enormous upside potential uh, as the markets start to uh, be a bit kinder to, uh, to the precious metals and the base metals. Uh, quantitative easing has led and is continuing to lead to the destruction of capitalism, in my view, and it's doing that by disabling price discovery for capital. I mean, how can you have capitalism if you don't allow capital to be priced properly? So not surprisingly, then, the Western economies continue their lackluster performance, and given the enormous amount of leverage added into the global economy by massive amounts of new debt money, uh, that have been created out of thin air. The Western economies are now sitting on the precipice of, I think, a cataclysmic credit market seize-up akin to or potentially, unfortunately, much worse than that that we experienced in 2008-2009, triggered by the Lehman Brothers' default. It is impossible to know where the next so-called black swan will come from, but rest assured, with 100% certainty, it will come because uh, as a result of the endless amount of money creation, black swans are now multiplying 
uh, like jackrabbits. They're multiplying at exponential rates and of speed, and, and so it's just a matter of time before we have our next credit bust, I'm afraid. It is idiotic, but most people have no clue that our monetary system, unlike a gold-backed system, is a debt-based system. They think money can just appear like manna out of heaven. But for every dollar that is created under this current system, there is another dollar of debt. And increasingly, every new infusion of this new debt money into the veins of the global economy results in less and less growth relative to the amount of debt that is being accumulated in the economy. And that's a result of what the Austrian economists understand very well as malinvestment. Money just isn't put to good use when you're not allowed capital to be priced properly. Therefore, I believe it is only a matter of time. There was an excellent article that was published at milesfranklin.com that I highly recommend you go to read. It was written by Bill Holter, and he talks about a problem that occurred. Actually, Zero Hedge mentioned this as well last week on Thursday. Uh, There was a near-market meltdown that started in the Eurozone when a very weak demand for a French sovereign bond uh, when the markets were very weak and didn't really want to buy the thing, I guess. And, and so that sort of triggered uh, a massive increase in the German Bund. Uh, and then uh, the euro next derivative markets were shut down, uh, which gave central banks a chance to restore order by flooding the markets, pumping huge amounts of new, newly created money out of thin air into the system uh, to try to uh, keep things from imploding. This is just one more example as why the Fed and other central banks, in my view, will never raise rates. In fact, as this example shows, massive amounts of new money created out of nothing is required at a faster and faster pace just to keep the system uh, afloat. The constant talk about Western central banks tightening credit uh, to orchestrate rising rates is, in my view, a pipe dream and used only to con the public into believing that the Fed has the power to raise uh, markets and to control markets. In fact, I believe the Fed and other central banks are impotent in that, re- in that they cannot really raise rates because if they do, the global system will, which is really teetering on the brink, in my view, will collapse uh, probably immediately. And every time he's here, the mere mention of raising rates, the equity market throws a hissy fit. So uh, I think the central banks are aware that they're uh, in this pinch. Uh, but what are they going to do other than try to make us think that they have control? Otherwise, the system uh, comes apart sooner rather than later. Central banks clearly do not have control, in my view. And I think we're on to a tectonic shift, potentially, in the financial markets. Daniel Oliver will be joining me. That's Daniel Oliver will be joining me at about half past the hour today to discuss the credit markets and what that may mean for gold and silver. Daniel's recent article titled, Quoth the Fred... the excuse me, quote the Fed nevermore, is what prompted me to title today's show, The Fed Will Never Raise Interest Rates, But the Market Will. Indeed, it does seem that the market is, in fact, raising rates over the objections of the Fed and other central banks. So the big question is whether or not the Fed is losing its credibility, and if so, what that will mean for the markets, including of course, gold and silver. Well, my views and those of Dan Oliver and a lot of other people in this show are based on fundamentals, but I like to check my ideas against the collective wisdom of markets as revealed through technical analysis and to help us see more clearly the language of the markets, the the big ones anyway. I'm really pleased to have with me once again Michael Oliver. Thanks, Michael, for joining me again today. Glad to be here. Always good to have you. The treasury markets that I was just talking about, um, what are you? You're watching the ten-year Treasury very closely. What are your? What is your latest work suggesting? Are we 
seeing increased danger, or are we okay for a while? What are you seeing? Uh, increased danger. Uh, the the T-note market, unlike the bonds and the GGB, uh, all of these are 10-year markets, uh, those two dropped pretty sharply, the bond especially. Did a lot of damage about two, three, four weeks ago, and then they paid some dues since then. The T-notes only this week have sort of broken below levels that I considered to be floorboards that indicate more problems to come. Uh, so it could be a two-tiered problem here. In other words, we've seen a, a route in the bunds lately in the JGB and a modest pullback in the notes that have done some damage, but not, not comparable to the bunds. But I think as a trio, they've got problems now because the notes have done some, some serious damage this week, which it's like a, it's a late comer, but it's adding to the negatives because it's now joined in. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and in the longer term, I don't think any of these markets look fulfilled on the downside. I mean, the, the breakage that's occurred looks like initial response breakage. Uh, mm-hmm. More to come. Uh, but, you know, with the bonds having gotten sort of somewhat oversold on a near-term basis, people could uh, fantasize that, oh, it's all over now. You know, you can yeah. get a bounce in the bonds or something. But I don't think so. I think the damage done is, is more long-lasting and is therefore more threatening to the equity markets. Yeah, well, you were looking at a 127.25, I think, on a weekly basis. A close below that on the 10-year Treasury uh, would would cause you some concern. And I see today, in fact, right before we went on the show, it was at 126.31, I think, something like that. So it is actually below those levels. So you're really looking, though, on a weekly level, I guess. Uh, forget today, or don't forget it, but at least let's see what happens by the end of the week, right? Sometimes I, I make those decisions about, you know, what do I want to see, a daily break below it, a weekly or a monthly, and that type of thing. And, and it, it, it's some extent it's subjective on my part, but the structures aren't. And we're breaking structures on dailies, weeklies, and so forth, and especially if you close the week below 127 and a quarter. Now, what we're talking about is a 10-year note futures contract, which is yes. by the June contract right now, which, as you said, is below 127. And that just broke its intra-week below a floor, a momentum floor that, goes back quite a ways, and so it's definitely a major break in the integrity of the uptrend, the lower yield trend in the T-notes. That trend's been underway for a year and a half, so it's it's a break of a year and a half trend. So I think there's more to come. So I know, Michael, you're not going to want to say this uh, probably, but... Could it be, I'm just, I'm just asking the question rhetorically, could it be that we are approaching the end of a major bull market in treasuries that started back when I was still a young person? That was back right. in uh, you know, 1981. Yes, I, I think so. I think we, we were at that point, and it got to excesses, particularly in some markets like the bonds and the JGB, where they, you know, we approached zero rates or actually got some, some maturities below zero, which is off the page ridiculous. And, you know, it, People like to rationalize it after the fact. Oh, well, that, that's okay. I mean, that makes sense. Well, you know, 10 years ago, it wouldn't have made sense to anyone, uh, <laughs> including... Oh, no, for sure. So, yeah. so it, it's rationalization. But So it did reach an extreme excess of zero rates or negative rates. And I think it's coming unwinding. And I think the, the point of it is what you made, is that uh, you know, there's, a, there's a faith structure out there. Yeah, uh, and it's it a con game. a lot of assets, the equities in particular. And if they lose faith in the central banks then all faith is gone. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and, and therefore, panic can set in, in in those asset categories where they're supported by that faith structure. Right. After all, there's nothing real behind the dollar anymore. But let's right. talk about the equity markets briefly with the two or three minutes we have left here yet, Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, you made a great call, uh, I think, at the end of 2014. You talked about... Uh, 
2130 on the S&P being a, a momentum, uh, sort of a momentum top, a resistance area. Then on March, you issued an updated report noting um, that 2130 area again, uh, and then uh, actually more precisely 2126. Uh, when I last checked the S&P uh, earlier today, it was at about 2100. How are you feeling about that call now? Still, still confident in it? I, I still think that's the zone of a likely halt to the, the excess above last year's high. Remember, last year's traded high was 2093. We've traded below there today. Okay, it's six months since we, in December of last year, we saw that price close last year at 2059. But the high last year was 2093, and we traded 2085 today. So the, it's really not going up. It's just hovering. And I think there's there hope upon hope that somehow it will launch itself again, and I don't see that. I think damage has been done. And I've been pinning down that zone of 2130 and then specifically 2126. It looked like that's where it probably should peak so far, the high has been 2125.9 something, I think. So just right below there, and we're 2100 area right now. So mm-hmm. the question is, was that the high two weeks ago? Uh, I, I'm not sure. You get to 2070 on a daily close anytime this month, and I, I would circle it. I think you've, you've seen your high. Uh-huh. And, you know, we got to 2085 today, and then they bought it back up to 2100. So 2070 is the level that I would circle this month. Now, next month, that same breakage level will occur at 2090. So okay. the bulls have a, have a task here. They, they, it's a slippery slope. They've got to keep it going up, otherwise the default break down. Okay, then it breaks down. All right, with a, with a minute left or so yet, uh, I mean, if we're seeing a topping process and uh, some of the smart money coming out of the big equity markets, could the uh, reverse be true in the gold markets? What are you seeing with gold and gold shares, Michael? With, I, I, uh, with two numbers. Two numbers I'll offer up. I, one, I think gold shares are a better place to be in any new emergent gold market, bull market gold. Uh-huh. I think gold itself needs to get the signal. I think the better vehicle is, uh, for instance, the GDX or some ETF involving gold miners. Uh, gold is uh, 11, in the mid-1190s. It's hovering. It's playing both sides but not going anywhere, which is fine with me. The two numbers that I see as important are 1220. A weekly close there or higher. That's a very positive thing. 12.55 to me is that's it. Uh, you close a week, especially a month at 12.55 this quarter, uh, and I think it launches. And at that point, I, again, I think I would defer, though, to the gold miners as the vehicle. Okay, so the gold miners, the uh, gold shares may lead gold bullion up this I, time. I think, I think this time around the gold miners beat gold, yes. Okay, very good. Unfortunately, we uh, we are out of time. Always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you again, Michael, for sharing your insights. Uh, we'll watch these numbers very closely and hope to have you back next week. Thank you very much for being with us again. Thank you, Jay. Well, folks, don't go away. We've got to go to commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to be talking to Max Porterfield of Kalinex Mines. This is a company that I've recommended in my newsletter, doing very well. A lot of very exciting things going on there in Manitoba, where the company uh, is developing a, a, an underground uh, high-grade, very high-grade base metal and precious metals deposits. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Max Porterfield. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
where infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Arico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake. Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me for the first time Max Porterfield. And Max is the uh, Chief Executive Officer and President of Kalanex Mines. Uh, he has been there since uh, June 1st of 2014. I've known Max for a number of years, probably eight years or so, since he worked with Amir Adnani uh, at Brazil Resources and, uh, and also Uranium Energy Corp. I mean, these are a couple of companies I've been following for a long time, have a very high regard for Amir Adnani and uh, and I know uh, that Max, having worked with Amir, has uh, certainly would have a lot of the good uh, attributes that Amir has as a manager, very highly regarded, not just by me, but by the junior resource sector. And so I was really pleased to see Max uh, head out on his own here with, uh, well, not on his own, he's got a team, of course, but uh, to head up this company. And uh, Max uh, is, uh, well, he, he the trade, the company, uh, uh, that uh, Max is heading up now is uh, it trades uh, its symbol is CNX in Toronto, uh, and you can buy it in the United States under the symbol CLLXF. There's only 33.8 million shares outstanding for Kalanex, and uh, at 25 cents US, it gives it a market cap for around uh, eight million dollars. Very small market cap, which is exciting for me because I see uh, some tremendous potential. And uh, for that, we want to talk to Max to get a better sense of what the potential is for Kalanax. Thanks for joining me today, Max. Thank you for having me. So, you know, how did you decide to leave Amir? I mean, you worked with Amir a number of years, and what did you see here with this opportunity uh, that caused you to make the break and to, uh, and to head out, to head up this company? Well, I've uh, been very fortunate throughout my career to have some great mentors. Frank Holmes over at U.S. Global Investors sure. one of them, and then working with Amir at BRI and Uranium Energy Corp., where he's done an excellent job of 
of growing both of those companies respectively despite the uh, the current market environment. And when uh, the opportunity at Calinix came about, it was uh, really kind of struck me as an opportunity because of really three key things. And there are three things that really will drive a, uh, a junior, junior uh, exploration company uh, in any market environment. And it's a great team. Uh, the chairman, Mike Mazlowski, is a member of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Uh, very well respected and have a, a deep admiration for him. I'm really have, happy to have the opportunity to work with a, a man like himself. And then it's also had a, a great portfolio of exploration projects uh, 14 to be exact, exact in a great jurisdiction in Manitoba, uh, going after high grade and, and polymetallic for many of those projects. Uh, so it has the people, the projects, and then it, of course the capital structure is very important. It has a, a very tight capital structure with only 35 million shares out, uh, and a very supportive shareholder base. It has a really long-term outlook, which is what you really need to look for, uh, in kind of a company, in any kind of a market environment for that matter. Who are uh, some of your major shareholders? Are the institutions large individuals, or, or what is uh, the composition? How much does management own of the company? Management currently owns roughly uh, nearly 10% of the company. In terms of the, the shield, I'm sorry? Yeah, I said that's really good. I like to see that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and actually, our, two of our directors, uh, one of which Mike, uh, Mike Mazlowski, our chairman, uh, actually increased her position here recently. In, in terms of our other shareholders uh, and the shareholder base, it's very tightly held. Roughly 50% of the overall outstanding shares are held by a number of uh, investors that really have followed Mike Mazowski throughout his career, uh, notably Carlo Civelli, who has uh, actually come on as chairman of our advisory board uh, as a significant shareholder as well as uh, many of the investors that kind of follow his lead. Uh, so we're very fortunate to have him uh, not only be a shareholder but an active one that's uh, an active advisor in the company on the capital market side of things. Now, you, uh, you're, I, I believe this is your flagship property. It's called Pine Bay Projects. You say you have 14 in total, but Pine Bay Project is your, uh, is your flagship, I believe, right? And that has a historical resource, not a 43101 compliant resource yet, but it's a 1.6 million tons grading 2.81% copper. I mean, that's really rich stuff. Can you give our listeners some sense of the various metals that are factored into that 2.8% uh, copper equivalent grade? Yes, yeah, certainly. So after the Pine Bay project, uh, alongside our Flynn projects, are our flagship projects where we have our ongoing exploration. Uh, that makes it one of the largest land packages within close proximity to Hud Bay's um, crossing facility in the heart of Flynn in northern Manitoba. Now, with that being said, of that 1.6 million tons, the largest resource on our Pine Bay project is the Pine Bay deposit itself at 1.1 million tons, uh, roughly grading 2.8% copper. And again, that's just copper. With mm-hmm. the BMS deposits, what makes them so great is the fact that they are high-grade. And, again, you look at the grade we just discussed here. Uh, but also, more importantly, they're polymetallic. So if you look at the BMS deposits in the Flin-Flon Greenstone Belt, you're going to have to get uh, between a 50 to 60% base metal component. And when, when I talk base metals, I'm talking copper to zinc. Uh, and the rest is made up of precious metals uh, and gold and silver. Uh, so with that, if you look at our Pine Bay deposit at 1.1 million tons at 2.8% copper, you can see there's really a large potential to increase that uh, with future exploration on the project area uh, because there is a 3 to 1 ratio between zinc to copper with these deposits in the belt. Uh, so again, uh, what we're looking for is a copper, zinc, gold, and silver deposit in these VMS deposits. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it's a bit, I mean, just, just to put that in perspective, 2.8%, people can do their 
uh, put their uh, pencil to the paper and and see how much that could be worth at current copper prices. But it's a uh, it's a very that's a very rich. Is that a typical uh, max of the kind of grades that have been common up there in the Flin Flon area? Yeah, absolutely. It is. You get anywhere between uh, these grades up to five five percent uh, copper equivalent across these deposits. Wow. I think if you look. Um, yeah, you know, and a good example of uh, you know how we're not too far off of something economic here is if you look at Reed Lake, uh, operated by VMS Ventures, uh, in uh, in a joint venture, and actually Hud Bay is the uh, the operator of that mine, the joint venture they had there with VMS. I mean, that right there is a two million ton ore body grading roughly three and a half percent copper equivalent, where mm-hmm. they're actually trucking that ore 120 kilometers away to go to that um, concentrator in the heart of Flin Flon, wow. whereas. You know, our project uh, right here, the Pine Bay project, is 30 kilometers by road that already exists. So we've already we have that infrastructure, we have that proximity uh, to that infrastructure that's absolutely critical. You had reported on April 24th, um, 18.1 meter uh, intersection that graded 5.5 percent copper, and over a longer intersection of 44 meters. Uh, it was 4% copper. Understand that this is one of the highest grade holes ever drilled uh, on that property. You know, how does this, what's the significance of this? Is this a step out? Was it uh, an infill drilling? Or, or can you tell us, you know, how important was this hole? I mean, one hole a mine doesn't make, but obviously, what, how does this add to the understanding of, of what you have there? No, absolutely. You know, coming into this as we were evaluating the project portfolio when I came on a year ago, uh, a lot of the, the, the properties had a, a lot of opportunity with Pine Bay and this deposit and the, the, the resources that are on Pine Bay itself. A lot of it was historic. The Pine Bay uh, resource, the deposit that we have on the property today, was discovered in the 1960s. And there hasn't been much drilling really uh, on the whole project area since the mid-1990s. So with that being said, we did a, a huge data compilation over the past uh, you know 12 months uh, since joining the company. We've digitized over 700 drill holes and then laid ground geophysics over uh, choice areas for ongoing exploration. But part of that process is you really want to verify that historic data compilation is indeed accurate. Mm-hmm. So that, that, whole, that particular hole went through uh, the Pine Bay deposit. It was very good to see that it confirmed the data compilation that we have, which now makes it, uh, us confident in a you know, potential 43 uh, compliant resource moving forward. Uh, and I think it also brought a lot of attention to how high-grade uh, the deposit and uh, perspective of the, the land package that we have at Pine Bay and our Flint Fund projects are. You mentioned to me uh, infrastructure. This is an old mining camp, so you know that's a big advantage. Also, of course, Manitoba, I guess, uh, politically friendly, probably pro-mining uh, province in Canada. Uh, but what can you tell us about the, I mean, one of the factors that was appealing to me was the uh, the the notion that there may be an ability to have your ore uh, tow milled or, or milled so that you might not have to build your own mill to have production come out of uh, out of let's say this first deposit. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, that's uh, absolutely the case. If you look at the Flin Flon, uh, the concentrator there at Flin Flon, it's got an excess capacity right now. There's two mines that are, are uh, feeding into that processing facility. You've got the 777 mine. That was actually, to, uh, to be frank with you, it was actually discovered on uh, Callanan Mines uh, exploration land packages. It was an option that Hubei had on that company. And Callanex makes up the exploration spin-out of all those projects. Um, so with that being said, the 777 mine still is being processed uh, in that processing facility as well as Reed Lake. So there is still excess capacity 
should we, you know, jump and increase our resource base or make an all-new discovery aside from just the pine bay deposit that exists today, that that, that ore is, uh, has capacity to go there and a toll milling opportunity. But I think more importantly, we'd be an acquisition target as well uh, in a scenario where we were to make a large discovery. Uh, it would definitely get attention. If you look at the mine life at 777, the mine life at Reed Lake, they have a five-year and four-year mine life uh, respectively. So there is going to be uh, a need for a new ore to go into this processing facility, and we're looking to uh, meet that need. How far is uh, Pine Bay Project, for example, from that mill? The, the Pine Bay Project is 13 kilometers, uh, like to say, as the crow flies, by road that exists on site. Uh, mm-hmm. It's 30 kilometers by road. You can you drive up there. In fact, the Pine Bay deposit has a, a head frame and a shaft that's already been sunk there. Uh, so it's 30, 30 kilometers by road for Pine Bay. And then for our Flin Flon property, that we're doing some exploration on this, uh, this summer, that's three kilometers away. In fact, some of those claims are actually in town there. So you'll be drilling this summer. You'll have a, an exploration program going forward. Is that one of the, uh, one of the things investors should be watching? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, absolutely one of the critical things the investors should be watch- watching is we do have a, a fully funded exploration uh, program that will be commencing. It's actually our second phase of our two-phase uh, program that we announced in January of this year. So we'll be testing and looking for a new discovery at our you know, Flint Pond and Pine Bay projects, uh, and that should commence in uh, July or August around that time. You have 14 different projects or different pro- different targets, I guess. Pro- I guess properties, right? And mm-hmm. so, are you? Do you have plans to do something with them uh, when you can raise the capital to do it? Definitely, I think that any exploration company needs to keep a deep pi- pipeline of exploration projects, and that's something Mike Mozlowski uh, always was well ahead of the head of the curve on. Is is really putting together a great portfolio. So the, those uh, projects are in, in, in the stable for future exploration. And uh, really, we wanted to focus, uh, you know, our exploration programs today uh, in proximity to infrastructure that had access to capacity in, in a few years is going to actually need that uh, that um, capacity to continue moving forward. There are there any plans uh, to uh, take that Pine Bay project into a forty-three-one-one resource anytime soon, or is that are you just sort of going to drill and? Uh, sort of try to see what the extent of your deposit before you start to uh, before you start to uh, establish a forty three one one resource. Yeah, I think that uh, what we're looking at doing there is we want to continue to uh, do the exploration that we're doing, and, and, and phase two is the integral part of that, and then continue to evaluate um, when we'll be looking to um, establish that compliant forty three one one resource. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, you know, in terms of creating value for our shareholders to do so. They need to turn around and, you know, immediately update that. So we'll, we'll continue to reevaluate and evaluate when we'll do that 43101 resource. As for the Pine Bay deposit itself, a lot of the, the legwork and the big costs to putting t- uh, together a, a compliant resource report has already been incurred, and we've done so with the data compilation work and then this confirmation that, well, that we've done. But actually uh, completing that report uh, something that we'll evaluate as we continue to do exploration uh, moving forward on the property. Is uh, We just have a, another minute and a half or so left, Max, but in summary, can you tell our listeners why that they should pay? You know, there's probably a couple of thousand junior mining companies out there. Uh, why, you know, they most of them have somebody waving their arm and saying, we have the greatest thing since sliced bread. Why should people pay, just summarize, why should people pay more attention to you 
uh, to, to Kalanix perhaps than, than many of the others out there. Well, I think it's the same reasons that it, uh, for the reasons that it you know, attracted me to come join Kalanix as the president and CEO of the company. Again, you've got a great team headed up by Mike Mazowski, a member of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, who's attributed to uh, 16 uh, discoveries that went into production. 13 of those are in Manitoba, and 12 of those are in VMS. We're in a great jurisdiction. It's high-grade polymetallic, so in an upper, uh, up market or down market, we're going to be economic should we make a, a commercial discovery. And again, we've got a tight capital structure with long-term supporter shareholder base. So from that end to that end, I think we're definitely worthy of uh, investors keeping track of our developments. We are active and, uh, you know, we're here to deliver on the milestones we set for ourselves. No, I certainly like the uh, the three factors you mentioned, Max, and one of the reasons I uh, added you to the uh, to my newsletter. Of course, the management, the properties, the infrastructure, uh, you know, the, the jurisdiction where you're at, uh, the tight share structure can't be emphasized enough because I've seen so many people lose so much money uh, with dilution. So to have a management team that's conscious of that, skin in the game, and that's very important. Management owns a lot of shares, so all those reasons, folks. I would suggest uh, that you do pay some attention uh, to this company as they continue exploring and uh, what is Max the, the website I didn't write it down here what is the website uh, they can go to to keep up with what you're doing yeah you can visit our website at kalinex.ca that's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A excellent thank you very much Max for being with us and we'll look to do it again sometime in the not too distant future thanks so much for having me alright well folks don't go away we do have to take a commercial break but when we come back Dan Oliver of Mermican Gold Fund will be with us, so don't go away. Dan will have a lot of, I think, very interesting and insightful things to say about some of the things that Michael Oliver and I were talking about a little while ago, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Dan Oliver. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Kalinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Kalinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Kalinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalinex by visiting kalinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Kalinex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TS. SXV and CTNXF on the OTC. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dan Oliver, who heads up Myrmican Gold Fund. Uh, aside from heading up Myrmican Gold Fund, Dan is also the director of the Committee for Monetary Research, uh, and he holds a law degree and an MBA from a couple of very prestigious schools, and most importantly, is also very well-versed in free market economics, which... Uh, helps in his understanding of gold, and as a gold fund manager, that certainly makes a lot of sense for him to have that background. Um, and I might just mention a more complete bio can be read, uh, Dan's bio, a more complete bio for Dan, at the at my page at the Voice America Business Channel, so the Turning Hard Times into Good Times page at Voice America Business Channel, uh, a bit more on Dan's background. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for joining me again. Well, thanks for having me. Always good to talk to you. Uh, I really enjoyed, by the way, the last uh, CMRE, the Committee for Monetary Research and Education. Uh, a lot of very prestigious people there, including former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker was there. So it was a very, very entertaining evening. Are you expecting to uh, put together another show, another one of these conferences anytime soon? Or are you going to do it next year? Yeah, we'll probably have the next one in October, uh, b- b- barring anything uh, dramatic happening. Uh, the the last meeting will be put on the internet on our internet site soon. It's not there yet, but it should be soon. And I think you know Paul Volcker's performance is very interesting. Uh, you know, one of the things he said that uh, I think made the news was that uh, gold is the enemy, or at least the news within our money circles. And that's not a surprise to hear him say that, but it, it, or that he thinks that it was somewhat surprising. I thought they actually came and said it. But but what I thought was really maybe the highlight of the evening. Uh, was um, Tom Honing, who's the vice chairman of the FDIC. And as you may recall, Larry Parks uh, challenged him a bit on the derivatives and the scale of these derivatives. I mean, mm-hmm. no one has an accurate count anywhere between $800 trillion and, and $1.5 quadrillion, which is, of course, insane. And, and one would think that perhaps a, a man in his uh, circumstance, who's very much part of the system, would, would come up with some uh, defense of that practice. And, and he didn't. He admitted that he didn't see any, any business uh, purpose to it. And his great fear is that the banks are working to undermine uh, some of the restrictions that were put in place after the financial crisis. I, I'm not for regulation in general, but I do think that uh, the banks already have a privileged position uh, in law by being able to engage in fractional reserve lending, and then they take that uh, privilege, legal privilege, and they and they lever it up with these derivatives. Uh, so I, I think that's that, that was an important thing to have someone in, of his stature say, and I certainly hope that that uh, that we keep focus on on those issues. Yeah, of course uh, he won't uh, wouldn't want to go back to the reason why the whole system could expand as it was because it had. Uh, there was no limits. There was no anchor as we once had to the system that allow it to expand. So, I mean, it's infinite, right? Well, you Up can't until, go. Uh, you can't get a fellow like that to say that on on you know record, <laughs> of course. But but I, I think I, I might have mentioned this to you before. You know, one of the things I was interested in was that um, he is very much in favor of raising reserves now. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of hard money people would say, well, the only stable banking system would be one that has 100% reserves. Uh, well, okay, you know, we're not going to get there probably under this uh, monetary regime, but certainly moving it from where it was, which was probably 3 to 5% up towards, towards 10%, is probably better. I mean, it certainly mm-hmm. doesn't solve the problem, uh, but yeah. if I mitigate the scale of bubbles that the bank system could could produce if, of course, the, the uh, reserve ratio goes goes higher. And he's working on that, so he's at least heading in the right direction. Yeah, well, the the indebtedness seems to be growing almost exponentially. If you look at the charts of of uh, of, of the uh, debt, uh, and then relative to GDP, even as the government counts it, and I think there's some reasons for suspicion in that regard. But in any event, uh, there was a report in Zero Hedge last Thursday of a near meltdown in the Euro Treasury markets. I don't know if you uh, if you focused on that at all, but most because it, almost nobody heard about it. There was almost nothing said about it, but it did. Zero Hedge reported it and uh, was reading. Uh, something about it recently. Apparently, um, there was a very poor reception to French sovereign debt, and uh, and that uh, triggered a German boon to rise very, very dramatically in in rates, still very low rates, but uh, nonetheless, you know, to raise very dramatically, and that started to create a great deal of fear, and uh, and uh, started triggering an implosion, and apparently they uh, they shut things down in the wee hours of the morning, and were able to push huge amounts of money back into the system and when we woke up here in New York everything seemed to be just fine and and dandy again the markets went on and uh, and behaved relatively normally except that I've noticed that one of the things Dan I've noticed recently I don't know if you uh, if you really give give it any importance or not but the idea that we've seen uh, the last couple of weeks at least money coming out of the equity markets and money coming out of the bond markets whereas it used to be um, you know, whenever the equity markets were weak, money would go back into the treasuries, and the treasuries would strengthen, interest rates would go lower. Do you think uh, we could be at a turning point here, possibly? Yeah, there, there, there's a lot there. Let me try to address some of those points. I mean, when you say that, that debt increases exponentially, that is its nature. Debt always increases exponentially until it crashes. Yeah. And so I think what people at, the, at Zero Hedge are looking for is which snowflake is going to cause the avalanche. And it's impossible yeah. to know ahead of time which one it's going to be. But it's always interesting when you see liquidity dry up, it's a good to see signal that maybe this is the one. And so it's a good time to, to pay attention. Uh, you know, for the last, since really 2009, every time the market Markets have had any kind of hiccup. Uh, they've immediately bid higher and a lot higher because there's been this flood of liquidity coming in from various central banks, and so uh, the market keeps getting saved every time it wants to break down. That's going to end soon. And yes, in, in, in my view, when you look back through the last 200 years of financial history, which has detailed records associated with that, and then even before that, you can sort of see uh, uh, semblances of this. Uh, as long as the banking system as a system is adding liquidity, markets go up. I mean, because it's a, it's a, uh, uh, it's a vicious circle, right? I mean, equity prices go up. It means that you get more collateral at your bank. You can borrow more money to buy more equities or more assets or more housing or more bonds or whatever you're buying that pushes the price up and it gives you more credit to buy more. So, so you get this, this positive feedback loop that the power sinks higher, but then as soon as credit starts disappearing from the system, uh, that can go in reverse uh, uh, rather dramatically. The prices go down, you get a margin call, you have to sell, uh, that pushes the price down more, someone else gets a margin call, they have to sell. And, and so it's a positive feedback loop in both directions. And, that, and that's why the inflection point is so powerful because when, when one uh, loop turns into the, into the reverse, uh, you really get a whipsaw in markets. So in, in my view, the, 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 the market needs 
consistent credit flooding into it. And uh, since the taper began to, to, to cut that off, uh, the, the Fed hasn't printed any money now for several months. Uh, and uh, it w- therefore, one would expect at some point in the near future uh, to have the unwind. What I would say, and what I think most uh, Wall Streeters that I talk to, hedge fund managers and people like that, uh, think is that, yes, uh, probably they'll get a big uh, a correction at some point because the Fed isn't printing money. Uh, but at some point, if that correction threatens to become real enough to actually be painful, uh, Yelm will ride to the rescue. And she'll do it not because she loves high fund managers so much, but because she understands the connections between uh, uh, the economy as, as is currently oriented, uh, the credit economy and, and the mar- credit markets. And so she mm-hmm. will not be the one to preside over an unwinding of the banking system and a crash of the market. So she will run to the rescue and print whatever has to be printed to make the market go up again. And if you think that, uh, then it certainly changes your behavior. And you think maybe I won't, you know, sell at the first sign of panic because I know she's there, uh, with, with the yell and put. And, and that's probably not incorrect. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, some of us have not played that yell and put. Uh, you know, some of us gold bugs have been stuck in gold mining shares for the last four years and uh, very, very sorry about that. We really have missed the boat, it seems, to a great extent. But what I hear you saying, Dan, is that the system almost needs more and more credit faster and faster, in a sense, because as more debt is added to the system, if we were seeing uh, commensurate growth in the economy, uh, and and cash flow and GDP growing alongside with or in tandem with the debt creation, it wouldn't be so much of a problem, would it? Well, let, let's be careful about that. I've never thought that GDP was a great metric for wealth creation. Remember, GDP measures activity. Okay. And what they do in China, for example, is uh, you know some province thinks it would be very honorable to have a bridge go across a river somewhere, and so they build it. <laughs> and that adds to GDP, and it has all the trickle-down effects, right? You've got to buy steel, which means someone's got to buy iron ore. Somewhere. Sure. All those things. But if the bridge doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't create any wealth. And so the GDP metric is often a signal of frenetic economic activity with not productive activity. And, and you saw this very clearly, I think, in the run-up of the housing bubble, right? In 2006, uh, everyone and their brother was running around building houses and, sure. and everyone else was selling them to each other, making commissions off of it. Um, but it wasn't wealth-producing, and that was revealed in the crash of 2008. So, uh, you know, I think unemployment numbers, I think GDP, you know, it tells you Again, how frenetic things are. It doesn't tell you how much wealth is being created and whether the activity is sustainable or not. Okay, well, okay, so let's say if we had real growth, but are you saying that with this kind of massive credit growth, you're not going to get real economic you'll get growth? Activity. You'll get lots of activity, people doing things, of course, but, right. but is it along the lines of consumer demand? Does it actually create wealth or not? And I would argue mostly no, right? If you look at right. historical credit bubbles, for example, in the 19th century, right, what would have they built canals everywhere? Uh, right. for, for five years, and then the thing would crash, and you realize, well, the canal to the middle of nowhere isn't worth anything. And then next, right. in 1857, it was railroads, right? They were right. building railroads all over the, the Northwest, which was great, except that no one lived there. And so when the crash came, it turned out these railroads were worthless. And, and so that, that's, that's what happens in a credit bubble. People, rational people, are incentivized to do irrational things because the pricing system gets screwed up. The capital pricing system gets screwed up by the banks. And so I, the, those, the point is, those metrics you mentioned I think are not good indicators for uh, for wealth creation and whether the debt is sustainable or not. Debt is sustainable if and when the thing is financing is productive and creates cash flow that can sustain the debt. But if if you do things, if you build things.
companies with that debt that aren't uh, useful and don't create cash flow, then then eventually uh, people default on the debt. And the people who finance that were into trouble. I'm still waiting to find out who lent the Brazilians uh, you know, hundreds of trillions of dollars to build oil platforms in the middle of the Atlantic, which now have very little value. Right? Someone made that alone, and, and they're not going to get paid back. And when they can't get paid back, they'll default to their creditors and so on and so forth. So, yeah. it, so you can't look at those metrics in, in a vacuum. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's certainly uh, certainly is true. I mean, just because uh, it, your point is well taken, but you know, we're we're being told, Dan, all the time. The mainstream media are telling us that basically, no, our economy is not as good as it should be. We've got a long ways to go. The president, President Obama, will say we have a lot of work to do. But thanks to all this quantitative easing, we're in pretty good shape. What would you say to uh, to that notion, which I, you, we hear every day? You know, yeah, I, I would just I would just say go go back and look at what Bernanke was saying in two thousand seven, uh, and, and you know when, when even early two thousand eight when the economy was already collapsing, and he's on TV saying everything's fine. That you know we've never had a uh, circumstance where real estate prices uh, fell in the entire country. Of course, he really meant since the Great Depression, right? Yeah. Obviously, it happened then. Uh, but, but you know, all the policy, even, even uh, Yellen, uh, who was trumpeted by the New York Times for you know, seeing that things were overpriced, basically said near the top that, uh, that things are correct as much as they were going to. So, I, I, you know, yeah, w- w- what they're saying now, of course, has, has nothing to do with reality. It has to do with uh, the fact that you print a lot of money, you create a great party, People do lots of things, and it feels good. But that's but economics isn't based on what people feel. It's based on value and consumer demand. And if the activity doesn't create value, it doesn't satiate consumer demand. Eventually, uh, the market will liquidate it, and, and that's what will happen in the next crash. And and I would add, Jay, that you know, as, as you point out, the amount of debt in the system today is vastly higher than it was in 2007. The BIS says this. Mm-hmm. All the metrics show that. And so what that means is that when the next crisis comes, and it will come, and it may come soon, the Fed is going to have to intervene correspondingly greater than it did last time. And don't forget that Bernanke took the uh, balance sheet of the Federal Reserve from 800 billion to four plus trillion. But the real story was during the crisis, he issued I, I think it was uh, 18 trillion dollars in that in that range of guarantees. Right. They weren't triggered. They, they they went away, but they could have been triggered. They just weren't. Uh, and and I my guess is that. Because that "quote unquote" worked last time, in the next crisis, Yellen will say, "Hey, we know the game plan. We know what to do. We've done it before. It works. We'll do it again." And so that will be issuing massive amounts of guarantees uh, to make sure that the banks don't collapse, uh, plus mm-hmm. you know money printing to, to shore up their balance sheets. And and you know the risk, of course, is that you do that one too many times, and people do call your guarantees, and all of a sudden now the monetary base doesn't go from eight hundred to four trillion; it goes from four trillion to thirty trillion overnight. Right? That that's that's the risk, and, uh, mm-hmm. and that's. I think the risk they will run because um, they'll have very little choice when the next crisis comes. That at some time you'd expect confidence uh, then to be broken down, you would guess. Oh, well, I would yeah, have thought sure. it would have happened before now, Dan. Well, I mean, don't, don't, don't forget that when the Fed prints money, it, it doesn't give it to you, know, you and me to spend, right? It gives it to the banks, and the banks use it to lend out to people. And who do they lend it to? They lend it to governments because it's safe. They lend it to hedge some people because they're very liquid and they can yank their credit if they want to, right? So, so that money gets magnified through the bank system into particular activities, most of which are wealth-destroying, right? Like when they finance the government, for example. Um, so, uh, you know, and that's why you see papers from various left-leaning organizations that say, hey, you know, n- the next stimulus shouldn't be to the banks. It should be to the people, right? Write everyone a check. 
uh, for $1,000 and they can go have a good time. Uh, and yeah, if they do that, right, I mean, that will create a lot of, uh, a lot of consumer good inflation immediately. Uh, but, but the point is that the, the QE programs up till now have been designed to affect the capital markets and they've been very effective. The capital markets have gone up a lot. Uh, and so what that has done is create all sorts of malinvestments, which will be liquidated. Um, and the, the consumer price inflation will, will happen when, if and when that money lands up in consumer pockets, not in the, uh, the, not in the purview of the capital markets. Yeah, interestingly enough, uh, in your uh, April 21st uh, missive uh, titled, Quote the Fed Nevermore, you pointed out uh, a very, there was a very interesting chart there that showed uh, that loans are being turned down, I think in record numbers, uh, and yet, credit is growing. Uh, but can you explain that? What's going on there? Is, yeah. Who's getting the loans, and who and who is being turned away? Yeah, sure. It's, it's very interesting. This thing, same thing happened right before the last crisis, and and, and it reflects something that I think most economists miss, which is that um, the, the whole point of of uh, lowering interest rates below the national rate is for, is to make it seem as though more savings exist than really do. So businesses all run out and they start doing things they shouldn't do, like overbuilding buildings and building too many ships and too many factories and so on and so forth. And what happens is when the resources start to run out, right, and and the companies can't get the resources to finish their project. Their choices are to either abandon them, right, and, and leave them half finished, in which case they're worth nothing, or to continue them. So they go to the banks and they say, hey, look, uh, we know that this project was a bad project, and maybe you shouldn't have let us somebody begin with, but we've already built 80% of this thing, and so you might as well just finance us to finish it. And the banks are there thinking, hey, if I don't finance this guy to finish the project, is a total wipe-off, right? I mean, figure yeah. out the sunk cost, right? I mean, I, I, the, the incremental loan finishes the project, at least I have something. So what happens is that to existing customers that are finishing projects or have projects underway, the banks become very liberal uh, because they're so worried about a total write-off. But to new projects, they say, forget about it. You know, we, we don't want to finance new projects. Um, but what happens... Uh, what happened in 2008, of course, was that as all these companies scrambled for resources to finish their projects, you saw commodity prices absolutely spike, right? And everyone said, oh, the mainstream economists said, oh, look, things must be healthy because there's yeah. huge demand for these commodities. But no, things were not healthy. Things were already collapsing. The demand for commodities was due to these, uh, you know, John come Lilies desperately trying to finish their projects before the music stopped. But of course, by definition, they, by definition, they couldn't because the resources didn't actually exist. That's the point of the capital markets is to allocate resources, and what the Fed does is it, it muddies those signals. So, you know, I, I think it's what's interesting to me is that you see all sorts of signs that the economy is rolling over, and yet in the last little bit, base commodities have been in a tear, right? Well, I mean, that would be consistent with the idea that uh, the economy is rolling over, and so banks don't want to lend for new projects, but they are willing to finance old projects. They just need a little bit more help to get their projects done, even though they may not be uh, performing or as valuable as the banks thought they would be uh, originally. And that's usually a sign of the end of the cycle. Dan, with, the, uh, with just a couple of minutes left here, why sure. do you think uh, gold is behaving so poorly if, we're, if the markets, if the economy is in such dire straits? Well, you know, it's interesting. If you look at uh, most gold markets, uh, they don't move in curves, right? It, it's not the case. Uh, like in the 70s, there was a nice parabola. Um, and we saw a parabola from 2000. Mm-hmm. 
2001 to 2011. That doesn't usually happen. What usually happens is it moves in a quanta, right? It goes along doing nothing, and then one day it opens up 30% higher. And, and, and that's, uh, if you look at in this century and previous centuries, these, these currency crises seem to hit out of the blue. Uh, I think the, re- the reason gold's not doing all that great right now is, again, there's a huge shortage of dollars. The Fed stopped printing them. Uh, interest payments are still due. People need dollars, and so they sell the assets they can that seem to be underperforming, like gold, to pay their interest payments. Um, but at some point, of course, when the system starts to wobble, uh, either because the Fed prints a lot of money or because people don't want to be in the dollar system at all, uh, that's when gold will really take off. And my guess is the next move in gold will not be a nice, smooth curve higher. It will be a, uh, a, a, big, a big jump higher, and most people will miss it. No. On that, we're going to have to leave it at that, Dan, because we're out of time. Thank you very much. I might tell our listeners, go to Mermican Gold Fund. There's a website, Mermican uh, Gold Fund. Is that the website? Uh, yeah, Mermican.com. Yeah, yeah. And it's really good to go there because, and that's spelled M-Y-R-M-I-K-A-N. Go there because there's a lot of very interesting things that Dan publishes, things that I didn't realize were up there. Uh, his research reports, which are really worth reading if you're serious about the economy and what's going on. Uh, do yourself a favor and go there. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks, uh, Dan, for being with us. Uh, next week, folks, we're going to have Richard Mayberry here. He's uh, known as the 5,000-year-old man. Uh, Richard uh, really always has a lot of free market uh, things to say, a lot of things from a free market perspective. Uh, we'll talk to him about his book, The End of Washington as Superpower. should be a very interesting discussion. I want to thank each of you for listening. Thanks to our uh, sponsors. Thanks to Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer. And until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake. Foreign Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. 